Welcome to Politics Plus Media 101, the podcast co-founded and co-hosted by John Gunnison and myself, Justin Higgins. As a reminder, we publish episodes every Tuesday and Thursday, and we take a nonpartisan, deep dive look into U.S. policy and politics, along with the most pressing foreign policy issues facing our world today. We regularly host these shows with members of Congress, members of the media, along with members of U.S. and international think tanks. If you enjoy what you are listening to, please consider subscribing to our show on whatever platform you use, along with telling your friends and family about us. So, folks, on Politics Media 101 today, we have a special guest, Joshua Graham Lynn of Represent Us, an outside organization looking to get corruption out of politics. So John and I will host a discussion where we will learn a lot more about what Represent Us is doing and how we can improve our political system. So, Josh, before we get into everything, can you tell us about your organization and what your ultimate aim is? Yeah. So thanks for having me, first of all. Psyched to have the conversation with you guys. And the organization is Represent Us. And what we're all about is in our name. We believe that the government should actually represent everyday people and their families and their interests, as opposed to just special interests and party insiders. And so we've cooked up a smart political plan to do just that. And that plan is based on two things, basically. Number one, we've seen that throughout American history, when you want really big change, one of the best ways to do it is to work in the states first because as we've all seen, the federal government is kind of stuck right now. So we do that. And then number two, we've seen again throughout American history that real change comes when there's a movement. And so part of what Represent Us does is get millions of people activated, taking action and winning to fix our broken and corrupt political system. So Josh, looking through your materials, like through your website, it seems to me like there's a big focus on these ballot measures, the direct referenda. Am I correct in assuming that you focus entirely in that regard, and don't directly support candidates? Or do you also sometimes back specific candidates and campaigns? Well, so it's a great question. And I want to just draw a little distinction. So we definitely do use the ballot initiative process to get laws passed. We don't ever support or oppose specific candidates. Sometimes we don't like what candidates or politicians do, but part of Represent Us's nature is bringing folks together from across the political spectrum. And so because of that, we don't get behind any one particular candidate. We do, however, work with politicians that are willing to work with us. So ballot initiatives aren't the only way we win. We also win when there is a a body politic or elected officials in a state that want to see change and can get behind it. And so we'll work with them to make that change. And Josh, what about legal action? We've seen how a lot of the changes that happen in the fields that we're talking about, campaign finance, gerrymandering, and so on, have occurred through lawsuits. Does your group get involved in those kinds of legal actions? We certainly do participate when it's appropriate, but legal action is not actually our forte. We're much more focused on giving regular everyday people a way that they can get involved in, you know, passing laws that fight corruption, bring better, cleaner ethics, transparency into government, or just empower voters through things like ranked choice voting or fighting gerrymandering. I want to get into the ballot initiatives a little bit. So everybody understands that listens to our show that the Florida is quickly moving more and more conservative. But somewhat recently, while it's been a conservative state, there was a ballot initiative for a $15 minimum wage, and it passed with overwhelming support. So through all of your work in different states on different ballot measures, what is something that you've learned that has surprised you about working in this manner? And more specifically, 
does a ballot initiative provide a better way to cross cut ideology than maybe a candidate does that's running in an election? Yeah, that was one of the first things I was going to say when you started asking your question is one of the things that surprised me is how much we find when you're talking about just the core functions of American democracy or when you're talking about fighting corruption or you know getting politicians to not be so dependent on just their big money donors, but actually listening to the people. Folks from across the political spectrum can get behind almost all of that if we don't approach it as a divisive issue out of the gate. If you just approach it as like, Hey, you know, do you think the politicians are actually representing the people or are they working for special interests or, you know, inside politics? And of course, everybody feels like the system isn't working well. And so we've seen time and again in the ballot initiative process that it doesn't really matter which political party people are with. It just matters what they want. And that's sort of the power of ballot initiatives, right? Is it doesn't have to get so hung up in the ugly politics of candidate races and name calling and, you know, who said what this week. It's just like the policy that we want, we can actually get uh, if we fight for it. That is awesome. And I wanted to follow up there with in your 10-year report, which was really cool to look through the lessons that you've learned, your goals, your aspirations for the group. I noticed that grassroots campaigning was the first pillar of how you win. And I totally agree with that, especially considering what we saw happen in 2020 when a lot of Democrats did not campaign grassroots door knocking because of coronavirus. The Republicans did down ballot. And we saw what happened with the House of Representatives, for example. Different grassroots groups say it could benefit you three points by just door knocking. So kind of zooming out a little bit, when you have a ballot initiative or something in a large state that you're trying to impact, let's say it's California, let's say it's Texas, where it's very, very expensive to actually go and do grassroots efforts. Do you folks change the way you campaign and maybe de-emphasize that and emphasize other tactics more? Or is it a one-size-fits-all kind of approach to the different races, the different states across the country? So there's definitely no such thing as a one-size-fits-all approach to passing any kind of law is one thing that I've learned. But I would say that the grassroots work is almost always an essential piece of the puzzle, not just to get a law passed, but imagine you get a law passed and it's something that puts the reins on politicians. We've learned through our history that one of the first thing politicians will want to do is get rid of that law. And if there's no public backing, if there's no public support, if there's no grassroots energy behind that law, then you're much more likely to get overturned. That being said, when it comes time to actually have the rubber hit the road and try to get a law passed, money is such an important part of the equation. Uh, we have to have well-financed campaigns run by professionals that have been well thought out and are well-backed. Otherwise, we end up wasting a lot of people's time and money because the, you know, the campaign wasn't fully built out from the start. And so it's a really important piece of the puzzle to kind of balance the, I would say, the high-level political strategy, political acumen, fundraising that needs to go into a winning campaign with the grassroots energy, the local power. If this isn't something people really want locally, should we even fight for it? Probably not. Like Our whole purpose here is to put laws in place that the people actually want. And so I think it has to be a balance of both. It's just that that balance is different everywhere we go. So I guess combining the last two questions then, what ballot initiative or work that you guys focused on really shocked you where maybe you didn't know what to expect going in, but when you got to speak to the people on the ground, the energy was out there and it surprised everybody with the outcome. Yeah. One of my favorite stories from the last 10 years is the story of the women called the badass grandmas, self-titled, uh, or I guess one of their, you know, one of their 
grandchildren started calling them the badass grandmas. And they are a group of women from North Dakota, Republicans, independents, and Democrats all working together because they recognized that North Dakota's transparency and ethics laws were just woefully out of date and weak. And so they had gotten wind of one of our campaigns in South Dakota, the neighboring state, and decided that they wanted to go ahead and make it happen in their state. And so at some point, they reached out to us and said, hey, we want an ethics board and we want transparency laws here in North Dakota. And our team said, that's great, you know, but you're going to need some political backing. And so they went out and they found the right spokespeople locally from the right and the left. And they came back and they said, we've got it. And it's like, okay, well, now that you have that, you're going to need to do some fundraising locally because you have to have local money involved as well. And you're going to need a legal scholar or somebody locally to read the constitution and make sure your law gets written well. And they did all of that. And what was so incredible about it was every time we pushed them back and said, here's the next thing you're going to need to do, they took the initiative to go do it and ended up making an incredibly successful campaign that is well talked about in the democracy space as one of the times where it actually started at the grassroots. And it just shows that with the right group of people and the right determination, you can not only break down party barriers, but you can change laws and you can change laws that like now North Dakota has some of the nation's strongest ethics and transparency laws where we know who's funding what candidate. We know which politicians are taking money from what special interests. And like, that is the first step in cracking down on corruption. So Josh, when we talk about money in politics and how special interests influence the behaviors of public servants, public figures, often we're not talking about the money that is donated directly into campaigns, but instead the money that's spent by outside groups. This is the fastest growing part of the campaign finance landscape. And it's almost entirely unregulated as a consequence of the 2010 Citizens United versus FEC Supreme Court decision. I want to ask you something that I think is on the minds of lots of people who care about this. And that's whether all of our efforts to try to change the way this stuff works are futile. Because the Supreme Court seemed to have a real commitment to the idea that campaign or issue-related spending by outside groups is entirely protected by the First Amendment. And they seem likely to strike down any kinds of regulations, restrictions, or rules that we would try to implement in that space. It almost seems like there's no way that we can win when even if we got legislative action at the state, local, or even federal level, we expect that the Supreme Court would just strike it down. So much mainstream campaign finance law has now become illegal. Is it hopeless? I mean, I don't think it's hopeless. Look, in the last 10 years, we've had 160 victories in cities and states across the country. And every single one of those victories matters. And in most cases, like I'll talk about our very first victory in 2014 in the city of Tallahassee, Florida. Ethics Commission goes in place. Over the next two cycles, there's an FBI investigation because there was a whole lot of stuff going on that nobody could see before. And then uh, they had a full turnover of all of the sitting members, members of their council because there was so much scrutiny. All of a sudden, everything that was untoward had been brought to light. And so they were incentivized to leave office. And if you extrapolate that out, sure, it's true that Citizens United was an atrocious decision and opened up a flood of money into the political system that wasn't there before. However, there are innovative ways to fight back against that. So one strategy is what you're talking about, which is clamping down on the money, right? But money is like water in campaigns. So you put a plug in this part of the dam and another hole opens up and it starts flowing this way and that. And so what a lot of experts, including us, 
think is a better way to go about this is yes, you have to have restrictions. Like you have to incentivize candidates to run on clean money. You also have to make clean money available. And one of the greatest examples of that is in Seattle. They have a program called Democracy Dollars. And basically, if you live in Seattle, you get a gift card every time there's an election with, I think it's 50 bucks now that you can donate to the politician that you choose to donate to. That politician, if they're going to take your money, has to then agree to campaign finance limits from special interests or lobbyists, you know, what have you. And the power there is it's not an insurmountable amount of money. I think the last election was $14 billion or something, which is just an absurd amount of money to be spending on elections. But in the grand scheme of things, America spends eight to $10 billion a year on Halloween candy. And so if we can spend that much money on Halloween candy, surely we can spend that much money on making sure that our elections are funded of, by, and for the people with clean money to just sort of balance out or dilute the dirty money that's already in the system. So in a situation where there isn't a public initiative to provide people these kinds of vouchers, what we need to do instead then is just encourage more ordinary people to donate to campaigns. It seems like an extension kind of of this train of thought. Yeah, I mean, it could be. And look, vouchers aren't the only model. There are public matching funds. There's all sorts of models for putting power of the funding of elections back in the hands of the people. I think it's a combination of things that we really want to be after, right? You want to try to limit the amount of money that's going in from special interests. You want to make it so that lobbyists can't give gold watches to politicians in order to pass law once they get into office, because that's the thing that really bothers us, right? Like running for office is one thing. Getting into office and then paying back all those favors, that's when it really gets ugly. And so we want to have restrictions around those kinds of things. And that is, again, possible, doable, and we have done it. But I can't understate the power of complementary laws like cracking down on gerrymandering or introducing ranked choice voting. Because when you have a more competitive political system, when candidates actually can get voted out of office for their bad behavior, then they're more incentivized to work on behalf of the people, even if they're taking special interest money. I think what you talked about just then about the gold watches, it reminds me of another notorious Supreme Court decision. And that was a decision to vacate the conviction of Governor Bob McDonnell of Virginia someone who had been accepting lots of gifts from lobbyists and using his office to provide favors, hosting events for this lobbyist at the governor's mansion and so on. And Governor McDonald was convicted in the criminal justice system. But when the Supreme Court had the opportunity to uh, consider their appeal, they vacated the conviction. And I think what's most extraordinary, something that really needs to be focused on and emphasized is that this was not a 5-4 decision like the Citizens United decision. This was a unanimous decision. This was all of the justices that were appointed by Republicans, plus all of the justices that were appointed by Democrats that agreed to let McDonald off the hook. And it seems to me that if McDonald wasn't guilty of accepting bribes, it's hard to imagine how we can have any kind of functioning bribery laws at all. They seem to want to introduce a standard that's something like a written explicit quid pro quo. And that's not really the way the world works, is it? I mean, when people are giving bribes, do we expect them to write up a contract saying, you will do this in exchange for this? It's just not a realistic understanding of how the world works and how government and politics function. And just like I said, when the Supreme Court makes a decision like that one, you have to wonder if the whole thing really is futile. Again, don't you, Josh? And again, unanimous Republicans and Democrats appointed right. justices. So I won't, I won't comment on what the justices were or weren't thinking in that particular case. 
But I will say it is absurd. I agree with you. It's absurd. You're not going to ever get like a big stack of money with a label. This is a bribe on top of it, right? Like that's just not how the system works. But if you all remember famed super lobbyist, Jack Abramoff, got in a whole lot of trouble for his dealings. What he said was, as soon as you offered a job to an outgoing member of Congress, that was when he knew he could get them to do whatever he wanted. And so the whole revolving door problem of politicians, you know, being serving in Congress, being a public servant, and then leveraging that service to get a private industry job for millions of dollars, it basically sets them up for life with a cushy, cozy job. And then, of course, gives their clients access back to Congress. That needs to be shut too. And I guess I just, I'm not quite as cynical as you maybe <laughs> about whether it's hopeless, not just because of the Supreme Court, but because like any law, if the law is not in place, then of course there's nobody's going to follow it. If the law is in place, it's certainly going to get broken. And sometimes we're not going to like the way justice works. But I don't think that means we shouldn't have the right rules in place. It just means we need to put the rules in place and then do our damnedest to make us stink when they're not being upheld. So the Supreme Court has made it so we can't really have these strong finance campaign finance laws in place. So I guess my question is, just to follow up on that, we've had, I believe it was Senator Sheldon Whitehouse on, and we asked him, should Democrats continue this trend where they're saying they're not going to take any PAC money and whether they're keeping their word or not, they're saying that they're not going to you know, engage with super PACs and they don't want super PACs engaging on their behalf. And, and we asked him, should Democrats continue this? And as you know, he's a big anti-corruption, big finance reform guy. And he said, no, yeah. it's, it's equivalent to they should not play this game. They should take the money wherever they get it. Because just limiting your access to clean money, as we've been talking about, is basically unilaterally disarming and giving the opposition a leg up. So considering that that is the paradigm where you have politicians who view winning as a zero-sum game, and many of them are reluctant on reducing their ability to fundraise to clean money, even if ideologically they're in favor of it, how do we get them to adhere to this and do as they should do and not only wanting people to do as they say? It's such a great example, and it's so frustrating, right? Because you have the good guys on this issue, the quote-unquote good guys, saying, well, we can't unilaterally disarm. The problem is you also have the quote-unquote good guys failing to spend the political capital to pass laws that would completely overhaul the system when they have the chance. And I think that is like the big problem that we all need to grapple with as Americans. It's like, we have a system in place we elect people in that system. They gain power because they got elected in that system. And then they stay in that system because they learn how to work it. And so until you change the system, you can't expect even like Sheldon Whitehouse is an advocate on our issues for sure. He speaks about it all the time. And you can't expect even an advocate to make changes if the system that they're working in is still completely broken because they, you either play by the rules you're given or you give up your job. And so an important way to think about it is like, what are the incentives that we're putting in place? Like, is it easier to win if you take dirty money or clean money? Is it easier to win if you uh, work behind the scenes with special interests or not? Is it easier to win if you gerrymander or not? And so what I think is important to know is that you can change these laws still in states, and they do have an outsized impact on both state and federal elections, depending on the law that you pass. I think that this framing that Justin introduced about whether candidates accept money from PACs is very misleading and leads to a lot of <laughs> misconceptions about what's going on in campaign finance, doesn't it? Because 
the money that a PAC would donate directly to a campaign isn't really the problem. It's still subject to a lot of limits. And the real problem is the outside spending. The spending of these PACs are doing independently of the campaigns. That's completely unregulated, without limits on spending, without rules about disclosure in most cases. I remember during the 2020 Democratic presidential primaries when a number of the candidates kept on saying, I'm not going to accept any money from super PACs into my campaign. And it was, it didn't really mean very much, did it? Because this was just about the direct campaign. The super PACs could still be spending lots of money on their behalf as an outside group. And that's yeah. the real problem that the Citizens United decision created. And all this talk about whether the campaign proper was accepting money from the PACs was really almost completely beside the point, wasn't it? Absolutely. Like to your point, saying that you're not accepting money from a super PAC is ridiculous because super PACs don't actually give money to the campaigns. They spend money on behalf of the campaigns and then they use it as a big threat on the, on the back end. I can't tell you how many times we've heard stories of sitting politicians saying something to the effect of, I would love to get behind proposal A, B, C, whatever it is. But if I do it, there's a super PAC out there that's going to clobber me in the next election. And they've already told me. It's like, it's not a bribe, it's a threat is kind of the way that they've been framing it. And it's true. It changes outcomes uh, in a way that's not good for the people. Sounds like extortion. Yeah, yeah, it really does. Yes, extortion, just like Justin said. I mean, but before you do this, John. Yeah, go on. (laughs) Elizabeth Warren did say she would disavow super PACs spending on her behalf in the 2020 campaign. And then when she started to run out of money, she flip-flopped and refused to disavow a super PAC spending on her behalf. So I did just want to clarify that, John. Yeah. Well, and again, her disavowing what the outside group is doing on her behalf is totally meaningless. I mean, she couldn't even do that, though. <laughs> That's yeah, well, the problem. It's illegal, supposedly, under Citizens United for her to coordinate with the PAC. So, <laughs> right. With a PAC uh, called the Warren PAC. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if, if she's telling the PAC what to do, that would be. And illegal. to be clear, it's not just her. I mean, we're picking on Elizabeth Warren, but like it's literally all of them. They all have a pack with their name on it. They all have a super pack with their name on it. There's all sorts of coordination going on. Maybe it's not between the actual candidate and the person who runs the pack, but you know damn well the staff is talking to each other. They're probably going out to drinks. They're like, of course they are. And that is absolutely part of the problem because from their perspective, they're just trying to get their candidate to win. Yes. This whole conversation about whether the campaign was taking money for the pack was all a big misleading distraction. And I think it's led to a lot of unfortunate misunderstanding of how the campaign finance world works. I wanted to say something about this extortion element, because we're talking about these different buckets of corruption, right? So there's bribes, there's threats, like you said, when the outside group is looming uh, with the sort of Damocles over a candidate or campaign if they don't behave the way they want them to. And then there's the reverse of that, which is where it's the public official that's threatening the outside group, right? And that's like extortion. And there was an an example of a big event that happened in the news. And a lot of people interpret it as being a bribe or a threat. But I am wondering if it's extortion. And this is the uh, $2 billion investment that the Saudi Public Investment Fund made in Affinity Partners, which is the new investment group run by Jared Kushner and some of his associates. And everyone said the Saudis bought off Kushner, right? They gave them a a gift and thanks for the good treatment that they got. Or they gave a gift so they can get good things in case Kushner and Trump come back to office. 
But I'm wondering if it might be a little bit different, this dynamic, if it's really almost more like extortion, because there was a previous incident when the Qatar Public Investment Fund, which is called QIA, Qatar Investment Authority, turned down a request for financing from the Kushner family. And very shortly after that, Kushner, in his public role, endorsed public policy that significantly damaged Qatar. And I'm wondering if that might be the dynamic that's driving these kinds of investments. The payment that the Saudi PIF are making to affinity partners is perhaps more like an insurance payment or a protection payment than it is like an ordinary bribe, that they're acting in a defensive way because they know that they'll have adverse impacts if they don't make these investments. Is that the kind of thing that you sometimes witness? We talk about the outside group as being the bad guy all the time, but sometimes the public official can extort them. Yeah. I mean, you probably know the phrase protection racket from the mob days. Maybe it still happens now. It's like ye olde mob days. It's just like a protection racket. And it's part of the reason that a lot of savvy, mega multinational corporations don't just donate to politicians of one party. They'll just go in big with both parties so that no matter who is in office, they have an in, they have access. I don't want to say they have control, but they certainly have done their part to get to the table. And I won't call out any specific uh, corporation, but I had a meeting with one of the legal heads at a big corporation that everybody knows. They said that they were trying to get a law passed, meeting with lawmakers because it was going to be better for business. And the lawmaker just made it absolutely perfectly clear that the only reason that they could get a meeting was because they were donating and that they should probably keep that donation coming if they want to be able to continue talking about these laws. And that corporation actually made a public statement saying like, this is ridiculous. Like we don't actually want to have to behave this way in order to get what we want. We want to be able to do what's good for business. We want a free market. We want to be able to hire people. We want to be able to bring people in from other countries and hire them, but they couldn't do it without making political donations. And so, yeah, it's an extortion racket. It's a protection racket and it's bribery. I think just to say the obvious, no matter what you call it, it's a fully corrupt system and we absolutely need to change it. Yeah, I suppose what we witnessed recently in the state of Florida with the governor's office and the Disney Corporation is maybe another example here where the public officials were using the threats that they can wield over the private industries to try to get them uh, to support their campaigns. And I think that, Josh, just kind of what we're acknowledging here, how sometimes these donations or gifts are more like insurance or protection payments than they are gifts to try to encourage a specific positive outcome. I mean, this also shows how our understanding of quid pro quo is completely fundamentally inadequate, right? Uh, Looking back on this McDonald case, the Supreme Court is saying, if you don't have an agreement that you're going to get a specific benefit in exchange for a specific gift, it's not a bribe. But when so many bribes are actually more like insurance payments to prevent bad outcomes, it's a, a very different dynamic. And that understanding of quid pro quo just doesn't really work, does it? No, I mean, quid pro quo literally means this for that. Obviously, you're going to have a highly sophisticated political industry using highly sophisticated chains of custody of money and where it went and where it came from. And it went from this 501c3 to the 501c4 to the PAC. And then the PAC gave it to the super PAC. And then the super PAC spent money. So that obviously had nothing to do with the candidate. We know that's not true. And so clearly we need a broader definition of what bribery is. And we need oversight, access, transparency. 
and strong laws, strong ethics laws to make it clear that when there is bribery, it gets caught and prosecuted. So I wanted to switch, Josh, to another form of broken government, or at least a lot of people think there's broken government on the right or on the left and probably differently, but voting laws, right? So there's been a big push by the Democrats. I'd argue it was a messaging bill for HR1 last year. I think it started and it kind of fizzled out with a speech in Georgia. But that brings us to Georgia. There was voting laws that were passed, the Major League Baseball voting laws that some viewed that would restrict access to the polls. Major League Baseball pulled their all-star game out because they were afraid of player backlash. And it caused this major media storm. Everybody's since forgotten about it. But now we have the elections coming up in, what is this? Three months, we'll have elections. So I want to get your take. And you don't need to get into the nitty gritty on the different provisions in the Georgia voting laws. But do we think that the voting restrictions that many argue would be the result of the new GOP voting laws in Georgia, will they actually dampen turnout and make it harder for people to vote? And how should we view these laws in the greater paradigm of trying to enforce accountability, prevent voting fraud, things of the sort? I would separate, will it dampen turnout from does it make it harder for people to vote? Because absolutely it makes it harder for people to vote. And it's intentional. There's no, like, there's no version of it where it's not intentional. And <laughs> if you look at the maps, if you look at where people vote, if you look at how people vote, it's just like gerrymandering, right? You could say like, oh, well, they're just drawing voting districts. And so, you know, it doesn't actually change the outcomes. It's just like, that's the way people vote in that area of the country. But that's pretending that our political system isn't loaded with trillions of dollars of highly competent political operatives and sophisticated algorithms to figure out exactly where people vote. And they're using that same technology to figure out exactly which voters they want to make it a little bit harder to vote. And so I think we have to just acknowledge that they are putting barriers in place that make it more difficult for people to vote. And it's not that voting should unequivocally be quote unquote easy. It's just that we should have equitable access to the polls, right? Like if you're a voter, you should be able to get to the polls without having to jump through hoops. What's I think a lot of people don't realize though, is that there are just better voting systems in America that just work better for everyone. And Colorado is the gold standard. They use 100% vote by mail. They call it vote at home because everybody gets a ballot sent to their house. You have two weeks to fill out your ballot. You can discuss it with your friends. You can read all the ballot questions. You can even Google your candidate while you're sitting at home. The voter turnout in Colorado is higher than anywhere else in the country. They have the lowest fraud rate because everything is signature matched and barcoded. And there's a panel of judges from the right and the left overseeing everything. It costs less. They have higher turnout. They have lower fraud and better results for the people. Like the people actually like it better. And so I would say instead of getting into the sort of either or conversation of like, do we get to have integrity and security or do we get to have access? The truth is that with sophisticated modern voting systems like in Colorado, you can have both. And the only reason that we're not getting both is because at some point or another, it benefits someone in politics to not have both. So to follow up on that, and I wholeheartedly agree, but to make things worse, right? Now it's this national movement by certain politicians to discredit voting by mail and the system that you just outlined. Mm -hmm. So from your perspective, from represent us's perspective, how do we go about changing the attitude, the narrative in some corners from 
vote by mail being a Trojan horse for voter corruption into it really being potentially one of the gold standards in oversight and anti-corruption. And do we look at this nationally? Do we not? Do we take a step back and look at it state by state? And if we do, what kind of tactics do we need your group to employ, but also others, big donors that may be listening, celebrities and people with these platforms? What should the overall strategy and approach be? So first of all, we should celebrate Rhode Island and Vermont for completely overhauling their vote-by-mail systems over the last couple of cycles. Vermont passed near Colorado-style vote-by-mail. Rhode Island just completely overhauled their access for voters. So if you live in Rhode Island, congratulations, you can get a ballot by mail and you didn't used to be able to. Kudos to the people on the ground who made that happen. I'm proud that Represent Us was a part of that, working with locals and local politicians to do the right thing. So strategically, is it possible to change it? Absolutely. And we've shown it over and over again. The crazy thing is this whole conversation around fraud is just, of course, there's going to be cases of fraud, right? Like some jerk is going to try, is going to, try to commit voter fraud. But I believe it was in Texas, the attorney general spent $24 million of taxpayer money. They looked over and verified 17 million ballots and they found 16 cases of fraud for $24 million. It's actually not an easy story to Google, but you can go find it, Texas Attorney General voter fraud. And what's crazy about that is like we throw around terms like voter fraud is one in a million. It's actually one in a million. Like it's literally 16 out of 16 or 17 million votes. There was fraud. And so we need to get comfortable with not having that conversation because there is no conversation. Like voter fraud is not a problem in this country. What is a problem is we need to have integrity. There has to be checks in the system. We want to make sure that our systems are perfectly secure. Absolutely. But the problem that we should be solving for is politicians and special interests trying to rig the voting systems to benefit one party or another. I think that's the much bigger problem. And part of the solution is getting people comfortable with vote by mail. When we talk about this discussion about voter fraud, it's hard to escape the current reality in that one particular political party is pushing this view very aggressively and the other is rejecting it and combating it. And yeah. this has become such a major feature of the U.S. political landscape, especially since the time before, during, and after the 2020 presidential election. So I know that Represent Us tries to avoid explicit or direct partisan entanglement and has tried to operate as a nonpartisan group as best as possible. But when it comes to some of the biggest issues that you're involved in, it's very clear which political party stands on side that your organization agrees with and which one doesn't. I mean, mm-hmm. Listening to you talk about voting by mail and voter fraud, it's pretty clear. So what's your thinking about that right now? Is it I inevitable say, that you've become a little bit more partisan aligned? I mean, think of it this way. What kind of voter wants fraud in the system, right? Nobody. I don't know what is preventing the Democrats from not just taking a super strong anti-fraud position. Go for it. What I want to get across is to voters, not people who are in the political apparatus or people who are like closely affiliated with one party or another, but just regular everyday voters who are losing faith in the system. I want my message, which is based on fact and truth, to be heard by them. 
the claims you hear about fraud are not true. And that's just really, really important to underscore. However, from a political party perspective, I think the Democrats have a huge opportunity to just flip the whole thing on its head, start talking about fraud, go for it. Like, let's have the most secure elections in the world. Who doesn't want that? Everybody wants that. And so I think there's this thing that gets mixed up where like the political parties have this massive megaphone. We're all following the horse race of what politician's going to win next. And a lot of times, really common sense stuff that everybody just agrees on gets wrapped up in this like, well, the Republicans are the ones who are anti-fraud and the Democrats are like, pro everybody should be able to vote whenever. And so if you're for voter access, then you must be aligning with the Democrats. It's like, no, I'm just for democracy and wish that the two major parties could do a better job of standing up for that. Just to be really clear, one party has clearly gone anti-democracy in terms of like the actual structure of the party and the other party is upholding democracy. And so I don't mean to say that both parties are equal in this conversation. I just mean to say that if you're pro-democracy and one party happens to align with you, that's good for that party. doesn't change the way I think about it. Speaking about the two major parties and partisanship, I'd be remiss if we did not discuss a potentially major, potentially minor, but certainly interesting and abusing story from the news this past week, which is that a group of relatively well-known public figures, including Andrew Yang, Christine Todd Whitman, Michael Steele, announced that they are going to try to create a third party that can be competitive nationally in the United States that they've called the Forward Party. They made a big announcement this week. It was covered in the major newspapers. What are your thoughts about this? A third party in the United States. Some of those folks that you mentioned are on our advisory council. We work with them closely. And I think it's phenomenal that they recognize that more than half of Americans in some of the more recent polls are not affiliated with the two major parties anymore. That's something that gets overlooked a lot, right? Like you hear 50% of Republicans think blank and 60% of Democrats think blank. That's 60% of 25% because the vast majority of people are actually not registered with each major party. I think there's also a feeling in the air that many of us share, which is that it is time for a different perspective, some more competition, some better choices for voters. So I really commend what Forward Party is doing. I think my message would be those victories that Forward Party is going for will not come fast enough without the kind of structural and systemic reform that we're talking about here. So like without ranked choice voting, without cracking down on gerrymandering, the Democrats and Republicans have a two-party duopoly in this country and they have a lock on the system. And so great people doing an awesome thing, but we also need structural reform. And that's part of why it's uh, part of the Forward Party platform. I guess the question though is that I have Josh and I'm always thinking about this. Is a third party really viable though, without nationwide, for example, ranked choice voting, without the laws that you just outlined for campaign finance? Because like the studies that we discussed about grassroots and adding three points, it's also shown that for a federal candidate to be viable when they don't have a state and local candidate in the same ballot on the ticket, it can reduce their voter turnout by 3% in that specific area. So that is to say that having somebody run for dog catcher, for school board, for city council, all under the same ticket, going out and meeting people, getting people on their good side, reaching these independent voters that you said are the vast majority of folks, really does influence everything up ballot as well. The real succinct question is, I worry that these things get a little bit grifty 
and ultimately that they're taking away money under the guise of being a third party, which just isn't possible in our current system. And they're taking away money from groups like yours and other nonpartisan groups focused on anti-corruption ballot initiatives when you folks could spend the money better. So how do we balance the two? It's a generous statement. I'll take it. There's a not very well-known study about philanthropy around democracy. And that is that if you look at the total amount of philanthropic dollars in the U.S. that goes towards education, environment, healthcare, things we all care a lot about, it's between 15 and $50 billion a year. When you look at the total philanthropy for democracy that is not spent on any candidates, it's around $200 million a year. So $200 million versus $15 billion. And I bring that up to say there is so much upside opportunity for investing in democracy and structural reform. Like I talk about our 160 victories. Those are on a shoestring bootstrapped, like scrappy campaigns pulling it together. If And we know that we have a winning formula. So if there was a much, much greater investment, imagine 10xing that investment, you would have 10 times more reform happening more quickly, and you would absolutely grease the wheels or pave the way for groups like the Forward Party, which, look, I'll just say, they've got the thing that I love about what they're doing is that they have actually brought Democrats and Republicans who are both disaffected into one umbrella. And that is cool and it's different. And it's different from some of the other parties where it's actually been more about being at the extremes, right? Like the left isn't far enough left and the right isn't far enough right. So we're going out there and making another party. These guys are very much about bringing common sense thinking back to the middle. Uh, do I think they'll have a lot of hurdles to get over because of the structural impediments? Absolutely agree with you. Um, they're sort of stuck. And I do know that they've had some clever strategies in a couple of key races to make space for themselves. But I think everybody's fear is the good old spoiler effect, right? Where you end up, if you're run as a third party and you're taking votes away from one of the two major parties and you're causing the candidate that people like least to win. And it happens all the time and we all get frustrated about it. And so there has to be a better way. And that better way comes in the form of different voting systems, like ranked choice is one of them, but there's approval voting, it's fusion voting. Uh, there's a lot of ways to slice it. We happen to think that Final five voting, the combination of nonpartisan open primaries and ranked choice voting is the best option. So I'm going to save my question about ranked choice voting. I want to ask you about strategies for a third party under first past the post first. So something that I've noticed when looking at electoral systems that have first past the post is that it is possible, indeed, for a third party to be successful. I've looked at some examples and I've noticed a commonality. So in the UK, you have the Scottish National Party, right? They're actually the third largest party in parliament now. They have lots of seats. In Canada, you've got Le Bois Quebecois. In the United States, we functionally had three parties in the mid-century because of the Dixiecrats. What's in common about all of these? They're all regional parties. A national party that's trying to compete as a third party doesn't have a lot of chance, does it? They end up dividing their resources and playing spoiler instead. But a regionally based party could theoretically be pretty competitive in the United States, even under first past the post, right? So maybe the forward party are really thinking about this completely the wrong way. I think about, for example, the New England-based GOP, and I think about how they're very different from the national GOP. People like Phil Scott in Vermont or Susan Collins in Maine or Charlie Baker in Massachusetts. And the Chafee family, for example, also in Rhode yeah. Island, who compete and win in statewide elections, it seems like maybe that could be a third party. 
that could win, a regionally based third party, New England liberals or something like that. But the idea of a national third party, I mean, maybe that's just the wrong way to do it. Could be. I mean, I think it's an interesting way to slice it. The way that third parties have a chance in this country right now is if there is no viable major party candidate. So there's still only two choices and you basically get like an independent versus Democrat or independent versus Republican. Otherwise, it's just so rare for for that third party to actually get the plurality of the vote to be able to win and first pass the post. And there's no coincidence that Maine and Alaska, two states with the biggest independent streaks, are the ones that have implemented ranked choice voting. So that brings me then exactly to where I wanted to go with ranked choice voting. We have seen these states that have implemented it. How is it working? What kind of difference has it made? Have we seen third party or independent candidates win elections and be competitive under ranked choice voting in those states or not? So be competitive. Absolutely. Even more important than whether or not they're winning, because there hasn't been a lot of elections, right? But if you look at what the major news sites are saying about Lisa Murkowski now, they're calling out that Murkowski no longer faces an extreme partisan primary threat. And so it allows her to govern to her conscience or to what her people want and the reason she got elected. And what's so powerful about that is it's this like, it's this whole idea that you as a elected official need to appease the most extreme wing of the party in order to stay in office, right? Like if you don't pass that law, you're going to get primaried. We've all heard it. Like she's going to get primaried. They're going to get primaried. When you introduce these reforms like ranked choice, all of a sudden you take away that single party primary threat and you put into place something where the politician actually just has to get the majority from the most number of people in the state. So they have to get more than 50% of the vote. And in order to do that, they have to have some extremists and some moderates and some people from across the spectrum supporting them. And so it really, really shifts the dynamic. And I think that's what's most important. We probably could have used that 15 years ago, but yeah. <laughs> my former boss, now more of an independent, my former boss came up in the Tea Party wave and he got too far extreme for his district in Kansas. So ultimately Roger Marshall took his place. But it's good to hear that we actually have an example of Lisa Murkowski or somebody benefiting from a reduction in extremism from the primaries. That is good. It's, it's optimistic. I wanted to ask you, though, moving to 2022, what issues are you looking at that we should be aware of and that are really important that may be under, flying under the radar here? I'm going to give you two, and they're related but separate. So the first is we haven't talked much about gerrymandering. And this is like the scourge of our political system, right? The fact that politicians can just draw voting districts to cut out people who don't vote for them is absurd. The reason we don't talk about it is because the actual redistricting only happens once every 10 years and it just happened. So everybody's like, oh, well, that's done. Now we don't have to worry about it for a while. But that's crazy. Like we have a huge opportunity right now to pass independent commissions, to actually do better and ultimately work to, towards multi-member districts and proportional representation. But There are ways to address gerrymandering. I think it's hugely ignored at our peril, except when it's happening once every 10 years. So that's thing number one. And then thing number two is the new Supreme Court case looking at the independent state legislature theory, which would, as you guys probably know, completely blow up the idea that independent commissions have power over the state legislature to draw lines. So we're watching that really closely. Uh, It's called Moore v. Harper. And it's a really dangerous precedent that it would set for the country. So we're watching that closely as well. So Josh, I want to ask you about something that's a little bit abstract then, but what you just said made me think of it because 
we're talking about these big constitutional questions, independent state legislature theory, the basic functioning of our electoral system, something like the census that occurs only once every 10 years. Something else that's actually never occurred since the 1780s is a constitutional convention. Insider ran a story yesterday. I don't, I don't know if you saw it. Maybe, maybe you did. I'd see you're smiling. No, so maybe you did. No, oh, I haven't well. seen it yet. They ran a piece about the possibility that we're going to get a constitutional convention sometime soon. And, you know, it seems ridiculous or remote in the abstract because it's never happened. But they've got a constitutional scholar, someone affiliated with the Federalist Society, who's been cited in a lot of Supreme Court cases named Rob Nadelson. And he says that he thinks there's a 50% chance that we're going to have a convention within the next five years. Some conservative groups are working on this. They're actively advocating for it. There was a conference held by the group ALEC recently, where a number of the major speakers, including Rick Santorum, were advocating the plan to try to create a new constitutional convention. In a constitutional convention, the state legislatures, without direct voter involvement or congressional involvement, would get to redraft huge parts of the Constitution according to their goals. Is this something that is on the mind of Represent Us? I mean, it's really ironic that we're talking about a constitutional convention because 10 years ago when we started our group, there was so much talk about the 28th Amendment and a constitutional convention to deal with the problem of Citizens United, the like exo flood of money in politics. And so I don't think it's likely to happen. And I think if it does happen, we're at a pretty dangerous time for that kind of thing. Because like you said, it basically just you take the constitution we have, you throw it away and you write a new one. And there's so much radicalism and extremism baked in at the state level and federally at this point that I think hitting the reset button that hard for the country right now in the state that we're in surely would open up opportunities, but I think it opens up a ton of risk as well. And ultimately, it's probably not the best path forward. So Josh, this possibility, I mean, whether or not it's real, it's hard to say, but again, it would give all of the decision-making power to the state legislatures. It's not the normal operation of politics that we're used to, where we can affect change through the ballot measures and so on in the domain that we're discussing. So does it reiterate the importance of partisan control of state legislatures? And if this became more and more of a tangible possibility, would it challenge represent us as nonpartisan, non-direct endorsement of candidates approach? Are you talking about the independent state legislature theory? Yeah, I'm saying if there was a constitutional convention, the partisan control of state legislators would be what matters the most. Yep. And uh, would it inspire you to take a more direct approach to partisan campaigns for state legislatures? Surely, if there is a seismic shift to the order of more v. Harper coming down on the really extreme side, or if there's a constitutional convention, certainly some changes could happen that would make represent us have to change our strategy. That being said, I just bristle at the notion that it has to be thought of as a partisan thing. I know that in the current structure, there is a partisan divide of like what would happen in a, in a situation like this. But ultimately, I would be totally comfortable with the Liz Cheney's and Adam uh, Kinzinger's and you know, the McCain Republicans having a hand in that kind of redraw of, of the Constitution because they brought a pro-democracy, uh, pro-America perspective to everything that they did and everything they do. 
And I think the problem is that so much of the Republican Party right now has just been overtaken by an extreme version of it that is not representative of conservatism. It's not representative of really anything that we've come to think of as patriotism or pro-America. It is an extremism. And you know, you could see it on January 6th. You see it in people leaving death threats for election administrators in their town. It's like town level county clerks are getting death threats from radicalized people. And so while unfortunately that is partisan, I don't think that it means that partisanship always has to be that radical. It's just the moment that we're in, and it's a terrible one for represent us's place in it. Our role is going to continue to be fixing the root cause of the system because we certainly didn't get to this place that we're at without help from the broken system. So considering what you just said, and Brad Raffensperger is another example of a good Republican yep. that stood up for the rule of law and got all those death threats. I think they had to move, I don't even know, like out of his house and all this stuff, crazy yep. stuff. But considering how negative of a tone that comment just had, which is realistic, I would agree with you that it's a realistic view of where we're at. Why should we be positive? What do we have to look forward to that your group's doing, that other groups are doing? Why should we have hope? Oh, I mean, every week, my organization sends out an internal memo. We call it our Monday memo. And it underscores not only the work that's being done around the country, where we see things like a quote from election administrators in Wisconsin saying, thank you so much for your work. This is the first time in my 20-year career that anybody has ever spoken out for me and said, thank you for the work that you do. So on a small scale, it's those little victories where we're actually changing people's hearts and minds that make a huge difference. That gives me hope. The other thing that gives me hope is that there is a movement of people across this country fighting to change laws and winning. And so when I talk about the 160 victories we've had or the five so far this year, uh, or the six more that we hope to have this year, those changes actually matter. And if you, if you look at how change happens in the United States, it sometimes is the long haul that ends up making the biggest change. And we are one of those groups. This is a fight that like many of the biggest civic and cultural issues in American history may take decades or a century to fully resolve itself. But if we don't invest in the long-term fight at the same time as winning the short-term battles, we're going to keep finding ourselves in the place that we're in. So I find hope in knowing that when we assert ourselves in a specific place to pass laws that are popular with conservatives and progressives, not only can we bring those people together, but we can win. And when we do win, that often inspires the next victory. And it actually changes people's lives for the better. So that's how you can feel hopeful. Well, Josh, I just wanted to thank you very much for joining us today. We get to learn a little bit more about your organization, Represent Us, the nice 10-year report, and also your views on these issues that really aren't partisan. So hopefully through your work, through others' work, we can kind of tone down the polarization and come back shaking each other's hands, regardless of whether we're Democrats or Republicans. And just agreeing on good governance, I think would be amazing. Absolutely. And John and Justin, what a smart and uh, interesting conversation. I really appreciate you having me here. Thank you very much, Josh. Well, folks, thank you for joining us on Politics in Media 101. Our next show will be next Tuesday, discussing inflation, sanctions, foreign policy, driving up prices at home and abroad. Until then, we hope you all have a great morning, evening, or afternoon, wherever you may be.